I was happy to to finally be married. I wanted to be married very much all my life, and I was looking forward to cooking and fixing up the house and cleaning and having children. On her wedding day, the newly minted Mrs. Broderick, Bets to her husband, Betty to everyone else, looked romantically toward a future as enchanting as the lace veil around her shoulders. It was all supposed to be so perfect. But then again, aren't all marriages at the start? We were very happy together. I thought we did have a perfect marriage. When life goes spectacularly bad, some people will tend to say afterwards that, well, they saw it coming. On Dan and Betty's wedding day, April 12, 1969, for Betty's mother, and later Betty herself, it was Dan insisting on wearing a pinstripe suit and brown buckled shoes. What good could come from being married to a man who wore a getup like that to his own formal wedding? Whatever good there had been, 20 years later, it was more than gone. It was dead. In 1989, Broderick broke into her ex-husband's house in Hillcrest and shot him along with his new wife while they were sleeping. She was arrested later that day. You could look at this then as a story beginning and ending in two marital beds. In 1969, it was Betty and Dan's honeymoon bed. And in 1989, it was Dan's bed with Linda, his new wife of not quite seven months, which Betty displaced, dispossessed Betty and her five-shot, nickel-plated Smith & Wesson, saw to it that they would never live to share ever again. The man and woman who had stood at an altar 20 years before and made everlasting vows, now they were close to each other again. For murder can occupy as intimate a space as love, so that dearest Betts could hear darling Dan say, Okay, okay, you got me. She spelled it out matter-of-factly for a reporter a few months later. There was no pain and there was no blood. It was simple. Mom called and said that she was in trouble, that she needed my help, and she said that she had shot my father. How did Betty Broderick become a killer? And why does her story fascinate us still? From the Los Angeles Times, I'm Pat Morrison, and you're listening to It Was Simple. The Betty Broderick murders. I never made a conscious decision to ever hurt anybody, much less kill anybody. You better be watching. You better be watching in the dark. You better be watching. You better be watching on your guard. You better be. You better be. You better be. Elizabeth Ann Bisceglia was an Italian-American Catholic girl from suburban New York, brought up on prosperity and proper manners, knowing the correct fork, bringing the Tiffany hostess gift, wearing demure tights and cashmere sweaters, everything, just so, everything, to her mother's ladylike standards. Even after it all came crashing down in venom and violence, from her jail cell, Betty Broderick wrote fulsome thank-you notes to the friends and neighbors who had dropped her a kindly line. Theirs, of course, were on notepaper befitting their enchanted zip codes. Hers were on the unofficial stationery of the American penal system, the yellow legal pad. 
Later, after a few months behind bars, she ordered personalized return labels with the jail's address and a red rose. The man she married was Dan Broderick, an Irish-American Catholic boy, the eldest son of nine children, a family not as socially adept as Betty's, but brought up rather like those Kennedy boys, to outdo and overcome and be the best. In the patriarchy of the Broderick household, there was the boys' work and the girls' work. And the boys were expected to make good, to make very good indeed, especially Daniel Thomas Broderick III. On paper, Dan and Betty were made for each other. Betty, the picture-perfect housewife, and Dan, the successful, squeaky-clean husband Betty had always dreamed of, the breadwinner and the homemaker. Dan and Betty embodied a certain kind of all-American marriage, one that felt for a time like the only kind, which may be why the Broderick matter has become more than a hellish divorce case and a succulent tabloid double murder. The story has become its own stomach-churning legend, and like a legend, it gets recast through the filters of everyone who retells it. Clinical and forensic psychologist Lenore Walker has spent decades treating and advocating for abused women. I think Betty Broderick felt the same way that women who had a gun to their head felt. Poor Linda and Dan, others think, martyred by a vengeful, obsessive woman. Two people were killed. Two people were murdered. That's Rebecca Lack, an attorney in San Diego who was close friends with Linda and Dan. Even if I didn't know and love them like I did, I would look at this story and still not be sympathetic for the wife. You get over it. You just get over it. But why this murder? Why, out of so many thousands of American homicides every year, why, with the victims 30 years in their graves and their killer 30 years behind bars, the persistent interest in this one? Why can't the world look away? The Broderick case was O.J. Simpson before O.J., a dress rehearsal for that daily TV diet of faithlessness and money and jealousy and gore, frosted over with a coating of celebrity. There were the inevitable Oprah interviews with Betty in prison. I think it's important for women to know that you don't give up your entire identity to someone else. Don't you think that's important, Betty? That's very important, but the way that I was raised, that's what I was taught, is that love is putting the other person first. There were two TV movies and a fictionalized Law and Order episode, and playing Betty did well for the actresses who portrayed her. Both Meredith Baxter and Shirley Knight earned Emmy nominations for their work. There are books, true crime podcast recaps, and now a new TV adaptation coming out this summer. There's a Betty Broderick Women Who Kill online trivia quiz with questions like... After firing five shots, what one thing did Betty do before she left the house that would come back to haunt her? A. Went into the bathroom to get scissors to cut off Linda's hair. B. Well, you get the idea. Facebook fan pages for Betty are filled with comments expressing support and sympathy. One fan, Deanna, wrote, Every woman who has been treated badly by a man feels her pain. The Facebook page memorializing Dan and Linda Broderick gets a lot fewer likes. It's true, too, that this case pulls up a chair and has a seat at our dinner tables and in business lunches and family get-togethers, a means of measuring our families and our marriages. Like, well, she's pretty miserable, but she's not going to go Betty Broderick on him, you might hear. 
It's there when a wife says to a husband, if you don't stop doing that, I'm going to kill you. And it was there when a San Diego husband nervously tried out the joke, I think Betty Broderick was wrong, and so does my 19-year-old girlfriend. Truth be told, sometimes it seems as if we're all as obsessed with Betty Broderick as she was with the ex-husband she murdered. Betty Broderick was an eight-day wonder that's gone on for years. A woman double murderer, a well-off, educated, hell-of-a-talker woman, and a mother, too, making with the revolver and ventilating her ex and his new missus? To put it baldly, wealthy, educated white people usually don't go to prison. And there's a juicy gratification in seeing the rich behaving badly. There's a scene in a movie made almost 75 years ago, a film noir called The Unfaithful, where a woman with greedy eyes snatches at a newspaper and says with relish, I love highbrow murders. The story has become so embedded as a cultural trope that it doesn't even really belong to the principles anymore. Not to Betty, locked up in a California women's prison with other felons. The story doesn't belong to the four Broderick kids, two older girls, two younger boys, all grown now and distanced by decades from the obscene fury of their mother and the icy legal gambits of their father. If childhood was snatched away, adulthood, at least, can be salvaged. It doesn't belong to Dan and Linda Broderick either, in their side-by-side graves, close as a marriage bed, remembered by an award that San Diego lawyers give each year in Dan Broderick's name, remembered by the larger world more for how they died than for who they were. As with most morality tales, this story's been taken up by others and cut and shaped to fit their lives, the men who feel trapped by the harridans they married and charmed and invigorated by younger, more worshipful women, and the women who get dumped for those younger models, their families and marriages scraped away like mud on a pair of boots, and women who, in their rage and betrayal, may have fantasized about doing what Betty did. All the while, Betty sits in the women's prison in Corona, California, about a hundred miles through desert and mountains from the coastal paradise she once called home. Betty's fans and followers, most of whom have never met her, still mail her Christmas and Valentine's Day cards and buy prison shopping credits for the woman who once regarded Saks Fifth Avenue as a kind of second closet. You can buy quite an array of up-priced goods for prisoners like Betty Broderick there in Privilege Group A, where prisoners are allowed visitors, recreation and entertainment, and the use of a payphone. There's a small LED TV, postage stamps, apricot skin scrub, snack packages called Afternoon Delight, instant espresso, handicraft kits, and even religious items. Betty Broderick is now 72 years old, and she's been a prisoner for 30 years, rejected twice for parole because, she was told, her heart is still bitter. She is still angry. She showed no remorse. She showed no remorse at all. Calculate how out-of-time traditional Mr. and Mrs. kind of a life Betty Broderick expected for herself, you can begin with the fact that Betty Broderick and Hillary Clinton were born exactly two weeks apart in 1947. 
Tonight, we've reached a milestone in our nation's march toward a more perfect union. The first time that a major party has nominated a woman for president. Yet their diverged lives came to look more like they were born two decades apart. Hillary Rodham Clinton riding the cresting wave of women's rights. If you believe that your working mother, wife, sister, or daughter deserves equal pay, join us! Hillary was a groundbreaker, lawyer, president's wife, senator, and the first major woman presidential candidate in the nation's history. So let's keep going. Let's keep going until every one of the 161 million women and girls across America has the opportunity she deserves to have. And then there's Betty Broderick, who was horrified by hairy-legged women's libbers who thought Berkeley was Moscow, who really did want to stand by her man and stay at home and bake cookies. Elizabeth Ann Bisheglia, who expected a life in a domestic world of the perfect marriage, perfect house, perfect children, which required the perfect husband, someone on his way up in the world, and a Catholic, like the teenage Lady Diana Spencer, a child of divorce on her way to becoming a royal princess, Betty Broderick wanted an airtight marriage that made divorce a sin and an impossibility. And then, when all of that got yanked away by the very man who had once promised to give it to her, she, well, this anti-feminist self-liberated from that, you might say. She killed that man and his new wife and became the outlaw Betty B., a double murderer and a furiously unrepentant one at that, inmate number W42477 in the California prison system. But let's go back. To 1969, two generations ago, Betty and Dan, children of two large Catholic families, were married in 1969. 1969 was the year of Woodstock and the moon landing. That's one small step for man. It was the year Hillary Rodham got written up by Life magazine as the first Wellesley student to give the college's commencement speech. And ominously for Betty, 1969 was the year California led the nation in adopting what came to be known as no-fault divorce. Both Dan and Betty were standouts in their families. She was blonde and stood five foot ten, tall and striking enough to dabble in modeling at the chic Manhattan department stores where she sometimes shopped. Her mother looked on that as slumming, not the proper pursuit for a Bisheglia lady. Decades later, when Betty Broderick went into court, she defiantly wore her couture pumps with the four-inch heels, an Amazon among the men in suits, an inch taller even in her bare feet than her own husband. Dan was a pre-med student at Notre Dame, his father's alma mater, when they met in October 1965. Betty was a couple of weeks shy of her 18th birthday, and she went to Indiana from New York for the classic USC-Notre Dame football game with a chaperone and a girlfriend and their dates. Jerry Lee Lewis was rocking the house at a college club one evening when Dan introduced himself to her, cheekily sitting down at her table and writing his name on a cocktail napkin for her. Daniel T. Broderick, M.D.A., medical doctor, almost. He was prepping for medical school at Cornell. 
In one of Betty's myriad jailhouse news media interviews, this particular one with Los Angeles Times journalist Bella Stumbo, who wrote the definitive Betty Broderick book, Until the Twelfth of Never, Betty said she'd kept a beer mug from that night at the Indiana Club as a souvenir. Dan and Betty Broderick thereafter went faithfully to the USC Notre Dame games, and after they split, he took his second wife there, too. The sentiment of things meant a lot to Betty. Someone going through her clothes after the murders, after that sordid and poisonous divorce, came across her neatly stored wedding dress. Another betrayed woman who had torched her husband's clothes and defaced his house would have already bonfired that thing years ago. Not Betty. The Broderick's Wedding China, made by the same Illinois company that would go on to make the Obama's White House China, that obsessed her too. According to Stumbo's book, it drove Betty wild, the thought of Dan's second wife, Linda, eating dinner off her porcelain and refusing, almost tauntingly, it seemed, to give it back to Betty even after she had her own Mrs. Daniel T. Broderick III wedding china. As her defense attorney Jack Early put it, So the stationery that Linda used was from the same stationery store Betty did. The family photos were the same photographer, same Irish kilts, but Betty saw her face fade out of it and Linda Colquina's take that place. Young Dan and Betty courted for three and a half years, decorously, thriftily, as befitted a young medical student and his fiancée. In the spring of 1969, the virginal bride and her med school dreamboat married in a proper Catholic wedding in an old stone church in Tuckahoe, New York. Tuckahoe was about to become the TV hometown for the sitcom character Maud, a firebrand feminist on her fourth husband, a character whose life was as different from Betty Broderick's dream life as could be. Married life must have been a chaotic transition for them both. Betty got pregnant on the honeymoon. Time embittered by the whole thing, she later remembered her new husband's high-handedness toward her on this first trip of their married life, treating her like, quote, a housekeeper, while he read books. By their first anniversary, Betty was already a wife, a mother, and pregnant again. You married, and for a while, certainly did appear to have the Beaver Cleaver family. When we met, we were very happy together. I thought we did have a perfect marriage. Her college degree in early childhood education and English came from a small Catholic women's school. It had earned her a glimmer of a career, a teaching spot at a neighborhood elementary school near her parents' house in New York. Not until the day before her first child was born did she give up that job. And how's this for another of those hindsight portents? The little school where she taught was named for Anne Hutchinson. Hutchinson was among the most famous women in colonial American history, a radical religious thinker whose teachings destabilized New England's rigid male theocracy in the 1630s. It was a patriarchy that looked upon Hutchinson with fear. In the words of one historian, the, quote, hell-spawned agent of destructive anarchy. Three and a half centuries later, Betty Broderick's adversaries, like her murder trial prosecutor, were using words like that about her. This is a demanding, aggressive, angry, vulgar, vicious woman. (laughs) 
As newlyweds, Dan and Betty were two people working toward a single purpose that for once they agreed upon. Money, status, stability. They cobbled together an income from the kinds of jobs that students often do. He studied and squeezed in work as a cabbie and in a blood lab. She worked as a hostess at Bloomingdale's cafeteria, sold nurses' uniforms, and babysat other people's kids while her firstborn slept in a dresser drawer. Betty's body went into Catholic baby overdrive. Nine pregnancies in ten years. Two girls, then a premature boy who died. Two more boys, and mixed in there somewhere, two miscarriages and two abortions. Romantic Betty loved the thought of children, even ten children. Realist Betty kicked over the Catholic traces, and ten years after her wedding, she had her tubes tied. In 1970, Dan went from MDA medical doctor, almost, to M.D. But then he decided he was not going to settle for being a doctor after all. As Betty told it, he was going for the big money as a medical malpractice attorney. In the 1970s, medical malpractice cases were getting big and getting big damage awards. And Dan Broderick, smart, oh, so extraordinarily smart, and driven like a racehorse heading down the stretch, was heading to Harvard Law School. For Dan, that meant three more years of study. For Betty, transplanted to the Boston suburbs far from her family, it meant frigid apartments and hauling dirty diapers to the laundromat on the bus, selling Tupperware and Avon products door to door. Theirs were the kind of newlywed struggles that old married couples sometimes look back on from comfort and leisure with a hazy fondness. How hard they worked, walking uphill both ways in the snow every day, eating ramen and drinking cheap wine. How much fun they had. The Brodericks never got to that stage. Betty had big dreams for Dan, too, and later said that she'd once imagined Dan becoming a senator or even president. Years later, when Hillary was first lady and Bill was in trouble for the Lewinsky fling and Betty was in prison, Betty wrote to a reporter at the San Diego Reader, an alternative weekly. Her tone was less sisterhood solidarity than the brotherhood of the cheating pants. What about all this Clinton stuff, she wrote. Like Dan, it really wasn't what he did, but how he conducted himself after he got caught. Slimy horn toad. Just look everyone in the eye and lie, 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 thereby insinuating that all those women were in fact the liars, not he. Don't even get me started on how a supposedly smart man could do something so pathetically stupid. Ugh, the male ego. In 1973, with two babies and two Ivy League degrees, the Brodericks crossed the continent to California, first to a clerkship for Dan in Los Angeles, and then south to a law firm in San Diego. In two years, they managed to move briskly from an apartment to rented house to buying their own home in La Jolla, the Naples Ultra, the creme de la creme neighborhood of San Diego. Descend into La Jolla, just off the Pacific Coast Highway discover this charming beach town and its neighboring areas. You'll be overtaken by the same natural beauty that has dubbed this place the Jewel. Legally, La Jolla is just a neighborhood, a very rich one to be sure, within the city limits of San Diego. But it's a charmed place, like Brigadoon, the Scottish village dreamed up for a Broadway musical. A spot so enchanting that the village's minister prayed that God would make it disappear to reappear only one day every hundred years to keep it 
unchanged. La Jolla people were like the elegant actor Gregory Peck. The Nobel Prize winner Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the structure of DNA, and Theodore Geisel, otherwise known as Dr. Seuss. As a grown man, Peck recalled an incident that profoundly shaped his social conscience. He was a child when a black family rented a small house on the fringes of La Jolla, and the Ku Klux Klan set a flaming cross nearby as a warning. Some not-pretty things could happen even in this prettiest of spots. Both Brodericks were smitten with the place, by its size and its low-key, upscale style. And as Betty said, Dan figured we could be bigger fish faster in a smaller pond. It was a smaller pond, certainly, but they would also find success there to be, like any fish, elusive. Later, the TV stations and papers would keep calling Betty a socialite. But in La Jolla, there were nuances of circles and levels and ranks in every neighborhood and household, and the Brodericks never reached the uppermost of them. For them, La Jolla would be a fatal shore. On the next episode of It Was Simple, The Betty Broderick Murders. What was it about Betty that made it impossible for her to move on? And that was my first clue that Linda Colquina existed. She really believed that the law was against her. She really felt helpless. Everything of her life went on. The only thing is Linda Colquina was substituted for her. She worshipped money. It was her main goal in her life. She loved it. If she was going to get outrageous, he was going to do everything he could to methodically tamp her down. It hit the door and it sounded like a chainsaw and I ran out the back door. People seriously recommended that he wear a bulletproof vest for the wedding. And he's like, no, she's never going to kill the golden goose. It Was Simple, The Betty Broderick Murders is written and reported by me, Pat Morrison. It's produced by the Los Angeles Times with support from LA Times Studios and Spoke Media. Our producers are Paige Heimson, Jenna Hannum, and Carson McCain. Our audio engineer is Will Short, and our editor is Steve Clough. We got production help from Kelly Kolf and Alicia Force. Our original music is composed by Will Short from Spoke Media. Our theme song is Better Be Watching by Haley Lynn and Kyle Devine, and our additional music came from Firstcom. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Shelby Grad, Clint Schaff, Jeff Glasser, and everyone who granted us access to their archives. It Was Simple is executive produced by Abby Fentress Swanson for the LA Times, Keith Reynolds and Aaliyah Tavakolian for Spoke Media. She went to the garage and he grabbed a can of gasoline and poured it all over him. And it was a huge pile of things. And then she lit it with gasoline and then she went and got black paint and poured it over all the ashes. <laughs> <laughs>